0: To our old self and have a desire and a source in which we can live a righteous life. What power, what power that ought to have on the people around us, the influence that ought to have on a lost world. (laughs) Morning. I'm going to say something. The ending to my message just changed because of that. What I didn't tell Pastor Stan was when I was 19, oh, I was 20 years old, I was a sophomore at Husson University. At that time it was Husson College. I was a physical therapy major. Somehow they <laughs> let me into that program. And we got to the cadaver labs, that you had to start cadaver labs in your third year. And I went, I'm out. <laughs> And they didn't tell you about that. They just kind of briefly mentioned it when you were, you know, applying for the program. And I just thought, I I just can't do this. And I was really having a lot of internal struggle of changing majors. I know now it's a very common thing, but at that time I I was really struggling with it. My dad had pushed me very hard to go into that program. And I came back on spring break and... I went and watched him lecture. He was uh, teaching interpersonal communications at Kennebec Community College. And I I watched him lecture. I sat in on his class as a guest student. And I went to his office afterwards and I said, Dad, I'm gonna go into education. And I'll never forget what he said to me. (laughs) He said, why would you want to do that? You're not gonna make any money. (laughs) And I said, Dad, it's your fault. I just watched you teach and this is what I ought to be doing. I know it. And for the last 15 years, I have been in education in some capacity and I believe that has prepared me to take some of these next intro steps into ministry. And like I said, I'm going to close with how wonderful you folks are and how wonderful this church is and the eight-year, nine-year journey that we've been on here. If you would, open in 1 Corinthians, please. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 1. We are going to chapter take on a passage that I think is very common. I think many of you have read it. If you're like me, you've read this passage, and there's so many wise, not wise, foolish, not foolish. You just kind of get lost in it, and I think we just take it as a holistic chunk And we're going to try to break it down. So if you would, stand 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? And where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you that such a simple And as Paul stated, a foolish thing to the world can actually be the power of God in our lives. It is our saving grace. It is what allows us to come to you. Lord, we are sinful beings. Forgive us of our sins. We thank you for the cross. Bless the preaching. Bless the simplicity of preaching this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Please have a seat. I have read this passage many, many times, and it wasn't until I started doing a more in-depth study of 1 Corinthians that the passage really started to make sense to me. You see, it was understanding the context in which the passage was written, that is, the church at Corinth, and drawing a parallel between the church at Corinth and the 21st century American church, that suddenly this passage, 18 through 25, took on a whole new light. You see, in the last few Sundays, I've been doing some Sunday school helping mark out, and we looked at the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church was a mess. Would anybody say that the first century, excuse me, 21st century American church is a mess? The first century Corinthian church was wealthy. Would anybody say that the 21st American century church is wealthy? Yeah, we are. We are wealthy. We just talked about that this morning. Our standards of wealth compared to about two-thirds, three-quarters of the world. I know what the statistics are about living on a dollar a day. But we're a very wealthy church. And yet we've been blessed, haven't we? And our country's been blessed in so many ways. And you know what? The first Corinthian church, as many problems as they had, they had a lot of positives too. They had a knowledge of God. They had tremendous spiritual gift. You can read four through nine later if you want to. And they were excited about Christ's return. But they had a lot of problems. And you know what their biggest problem was? Their biggest problem was the world infiltrating their church. Does that sound like a 21st century problem? The biggest problem in Corinth was the wealth, the influence, the leisure, the athletics, the world, all the things that were going on, the trade, the commerce, the guilds, all the things that were going on in the world at that time in that particular city were infiltrating the church. And there was this tension, and Paul talks about this tension. He says, You are meant to be a holy body set apart for Christ, and here you are being polluted by the world. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Resonates, doesn't it? And it wasn't until I understood that tension between a holy body that was supposed to be set apart, being corrupted. By a world, being infiltrated by a world, wanting to be like the world, and yet right have their cake and eat it too, that I truly understood 18 through 25. And so that's what I want to spend some time on this morning. But it's important for you to understand that the 21st century church is just like the Corinth church. A tension between a holy body of believers and a polluted, corrupt World, right, That is an ongoing struggle, and that struggle has not changed for 2,000 years. So, the message this morning is, don't be wise, preach Christ crucified. Don't be wise, preach Christ crucified. Because the church at Corinth had everything... And yet, what they wanted to do was take the wisdom of the world and somehow make the gospel more worldly, more intellectual than it needed to be. Folks, it doesn't have to be intellectual. It's not intellectual. It's really simple, isn't it? I have no problem with apologetics. I love it when people like Chris Nannikin come. I was a huge fan and continue to be a big fan of Dr. Ravi Zacharias's work, although obviously there's some things that we need to be aware of in his personal life that we we don't turn a cheek to. I think apologetics are critical to the believer. And if you're like me and you go to witness, and I've talked about this in a couple of different messages, Do you know what the primary fears are when people go to witness to others, when Christians go to share the gospel with other people? Number one, they don't know what to say. What am I going to say? Do I know my Bible well enough? Can I quote scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture? Do I know apologetics? Can I argue the foundation of creation against evolution? Folks, We need to stop worrying about that. We need to stop worrying and hiding behind intellectual arguments because the cross is not intellectual. It's not. In fact, we need to accept the fact that Paul says in verse 18, what does he say the message of the cross is to those who are perishing? It's foolish. Think about that. It's a foolish message. And the second part, going back to that question about, do you know what the primary fear is for people who are witnessing? It's what to say, and it's how will people respond. How are they going to respond to me? What if they ridicule me for what I say, for what I believe? I'm here to tell you, it don't matter. It doesn't matter. Accept it. Because it is foolishness to those who are perishing. And notice the context there. Notice the verbiage. I'm not an English teacher, but is it a static moment or is it ongoing? Look at the word perishing. It's an ongoing state. These people are continually lost. They are continually rejecting Christ. They are perishing on And so we need to accept the fact that at some point, we will be rejected, we will be ridiculed, and Paul says, it's okay. It's going to happen. It is foolishness. But notice the hard transition. But what? To those of us who are being saved, what? It is the power of God. What an amazing statement the power of god the message of the cross is literally the power of god now rhetorical question why is it the power of god why is the message of the cross powerful to us well first and foremost we know that we when we accept jesus christ as our lord and savior what Physical change, what thing actually, spiritual change, actually happens to our bodies? Who comes and dwells inside us? The Holy Spirit, right? Jesus had to go so the Spirit could come. He would send the Helper. And every single one of us who has accepted Christ as our Savior has the power of the Holy Spirit literally dwelling inside us. Amen? That ought to get some Baptists excited this morning. Yeah. If you don't get excited you're going to really tank my ending because it's about the spirit-filledness of this church. But more than that, the power of God and in particular a Christian life should be transformed. You see, we are powerful not only because the spirit dwells in us because but what we should be motivated to do after the fact you know where that power resonates you know where that power manifests itself it manifests itself number 1 in that we're free you ever think about that we are free isn't there a great power in being free Have you ever thought about that think about the day some of you older gentlemen you retired you were still getting paid, you had a pension, you had money coming in, but what did you no longer have to worry about? Work. Work. The boss, the man, you, your schedule, I am free from this job, I'm free from the nine to five, I'm free from the responsibility, right? And yet the check keeps coming. Boy, I can't wait for that day. <laughs> it's yeah, Thanks, George, it's nice. Some of us still got a ways to go. Folks, Christians are free. And it's not because of the pension that we get. It's not because of the boss we don't have to serve. It is the fact that we are no longer bound to the penalty of sin. We had a Savior hang on a cross. 1 Peter 2.4 Hang on a cross. He literally bore our sins in his body. We are free. He took our place, and we can live freely. We have a substitute. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Think about that, your freedom in Christ. The other way in which you're powerful, there's actually two more ways. The other way in which you're powerful is this. You should have a desire to live righteously. You should have a desire to live a righteous life. Now, a lot of people try to live a righteous life in and of themselves. Can it be done? It can't be done. Look around the world today. You've seen a government that's figured out righteousness? You've seen a social construct that's figured out righteousness? You've seen a dystopian society or a utopian society or... Are there any other opiates out there? Man, in his infinite wisdom, has tried to set the bar, set the standard on, this is how we should treat each other, this is how we should live righteously, this is the way life should be. Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, right? Perfect construct for society, never happened. Folks, you can't live righteously without Christ. We as Christians have the key to a righteous life. 1 Peter 2:4 goes on to say not only did he bear our sins in his body, it was so that we could die to sin and live righteously. We're a new creation. And every single day we wake up, we have the ability to die to our old self and have a desire and a source in which we can live a righteous life. What power! What power that ought to have on the people around us, the influence that ought to have on a lost world. Thirdly, and I think it's this is not necessarily an order of importance, but as I look at our broken society, I do believe that this is probably one of the most important ways in which we can live a powerful life through Christ, through the message of the cross, and it's this. We are loved. We're loved. One of the great, probably the greatest human need is what? Love. Companionship. How many people do you talk to that just want to be loved? Loved. Ladies and gentlemen, I see so many broken kids. That is their number one desire. And their parents have failed them because of split homes. Their culture has failed them because they've said, love is who you want to be and what you want to be in any way you want it. Folks, that's not love. Love is a savior, perfect. God in the flesh stepping down from his perfection and executing his 4,000-year plan by hanging on a cross for you and for me. We said it today, John 3, 16. There's another beautiful verse in Romans, and it said, Romans 5, 6 through 8, and it talks about a good man might die for another good man, I would die for my wife. Right now, I wouldn't die for George. No, yeah, no, sorry, George. I would. But think about that. It says, but God demonstrated his great love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. This isn't just that brotherly love, I'd lay down my life, and we hear about it with law enforcement, we hear about it for people who rush into a burning building or go to the scene of an accident, right? All those different situations when that adrenaline is flowing. This is Christ, God, who knows you inside and out. He knows what you think. He knows what you said. He knows what you're going to do in the future to dishonor and disobey him. And yet, what did he do? He still died for you anyways. He loved you that much. That's the kind of love we're talking about. We're talking about agape love. The Greeks couldn't even explain it at the time the scripture was written. They had to make up a word and they used agape. Agape love. That is the kind of power we have in the cross. We have love. We have a desire to live righteously. And we have freedom from our sin. Now, we then get another really hard transition. Folks, let's look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate Mankind thinks, and I'm just going to use the term he, but this applies to women obviously as well. Man thinks that he, through his infinite wisdom, can find God. And what does I, this is referencing Isaiah chapter 29. What is Paul saying about that thought? What is Paul saying to these Corinthians in respect to man figuring God out, man figuring out the pathway, man figuring out his way to eternity? What does Paul say about that? He says, ain't gonna happen. In fact, when man tries to do it on his own, God will openly defy him, right? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. You know where I think that is the most prevalent, or the most, I shouldn't say prevalent, it's prevalent throughout the scripture. I think the best picture of this is over in Genesis chapter 11. What did the gentlemen, what did the men in Genesis chapter 11 try to do? Anybody know what chapter that one is? It's just after Noah. Noah, very good. It's the Tower of Babel. What did they try to do? They tried, well, A, this is important, and sometimes this gets um, overlooked. First of all, they disobeyed God's first command, and that was to fill the earth and multiply it. No, they didn't do that. They said, we're going to stay right here on this plane. We are going to then, sin to make a name for ourselves by doing what? We are going to build a tower to the heavens. And what did God do? God came down and said, not gonna happen. You wanna disobey me? You wanna make a name for yourself? You wanna get all the way to heaven on your own? Well, I'll just confuse you. He openly defied them, dispersed them, changed their languages. And I can tell you, after really struggling in Spanish freshman year, thanks a lot. Thank you, glad that happened, right? Wouldn't it be easier if we could just all speak the same language? But here's, and I think this is where our society is, and my wife and I discussed this last night. Actually, we've been talking about this a lot the last couple of months. Um, I think another way that God defies human wisdom, sometimes he just turns you over. Sometimes God just says, okay, if that's what you want, you think you're better off on your own, Go ahead. He gets out of the way and just ushers you in, lets you go in. Romans chapter 1. Flip over to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. Look at verses 18, 19, and 20. He has made it very clear since the beginning of time who He is. In His creation, look around, look outside. I can't think of a better explanation for God than watching the four seasons. Can you? Literally, things die, and then somehow miraculously, things come back to life. It's unbelievable. The tides, the moon, the stars, the perfect balance of the earth circling the sun. Well, let's make it about us then. What about the human body? Do you know how intricately woven and complex the human body is? You drop us from roughly the balcony, we're dead. Think about that. We don't get oxygen for about 60 to 75 seconds, we're dead. You don't put the right food in us, we're dead. Our bodies are so complex, and even more so, when a man and a woman come together and they share those chromosomes, and they share that DNA, and at that moment of conception, that little tiny child, right? Intricately woven, and spends nine months inside his mom, Being nurtured and fed and grown. Growing. He groans when he comes out. (laughs) (laughs) You mean to tell me that an objective witness who sees the birth of a child doesn't believe in God? Folks, that's so scary to me. You can literally watch a child. I've seen three of them born. Never more did I believe in Christ than at that moment when I saw those kids enter the world. Ever was I more terrified to think, this is now my responsibility. That is scary, God, what are you doing? But you know, even more than the creation, whether it's the seasons and the earth and the stars and the sun or the human body, it's inside us. We have an internal awareness of Christ, we do. Where do the ideas of perfection come from? Where do the ideas of right and wrong come from? Where do the ideas of eternity come from? The animal kingdom doesn't live that way. Why do we live that way? Because God has put it in us. That's where it comes from. That amen, I appreciate it, but it totally threw me off on my point there. I was getting ramped up. But man has rejected God. And you know what man would rather do? Man would rather do it his way and make a bronze statue of a snake or of a bird or maybe of golf. Maybe of green paper money. Maybe of hunting. Maybe of fishing. Man would rather do anything than submit To an almighty God. And ladies and gentlemen, may I submit to you that what God will do when man says, you know what, God, I'm going to reject you. I'm going to figure this out on my own. I'm going to make it relative to me. God is going to give man over to a depraved mind. Romans chapter one, read the whole chapter. God gave them over to a depraved mind, so much so that they applauded it in others. Does that sound like our culture? And we think that throwing the Bible out of school, throwing prayer out of school, throwing the new uh, excuse me, the um, Ten Commandments out of the courtroom, we'll figure it out. We don't need that foundation, we got this. How's that going? Folks, we are being turned over as a culture to a depraved mind. God doesn't have to openly defy us. Just let us have what we wanted, what we asked for, what we voted on, what we put into place, what we've allowed to continue to happen. Paul then goes on to say and ask this rhetorical question, and this is directly counter to, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, where's the philosopher? Where's the disputer? Where's the thinker of this age? Can any of those people do what Jesus Christ did for you? That's what he's saying there. Because you know what these guys were arguing about? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. They wanted to put a teacher, to put a human being at greater standing than their Lord and Savior. And Paul says it earlier, did I die for you? I I wasn't crucified for you. And he does it again here. Where's the philosopher? Where's the dispute? All these people, they're going to lead you down this track of wisdom, make you so smart. They didn't die for you. They can't do what Jesus did for you. They can't call Lazarus out of the grave, can they? No, No, they can't. It's 11. I have 15 more minutes left. (laughs) I'm not going to go that long. I don't have time to get to 22 through 25, I'll just sum it up by saying this. He goes on to talk about the two culture groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Greeks. And he says the Jews want a sign, the Greeks want wisdom, right? And there's nothing wrong in wanting a sign, right? That wasn't a bad thing. God sent them a sign, and it was the Messiah. It was the fact that they rejected the sign. They rejected the Messiah. They didn't want a crucified Christ. And it's the same with the Greeks. It's not wrong to want wisdom, but you should want biblical wisdom, godly wisdom. And it's very clear, if you read James chapter 1, God will bless people who pursue biblical wisdom. He gives freely. Just ask. So that's a really interesting case study. We would have talked about that a little bit more. But how I want to close today is this. I want to tell you a very brief story. And the story goes like this. There was a church, and it was an American church, and it was a Bible-believing, Christ-crucified preaching church. And they were proud. And they weren't proud in who they were and what they accomplished. They were proud of what Christ had accomplished in them. Probably a lot like this church. And they put an arch out. And on the arch, it said, we preach Christ crucified. And over time, they started to let the world in just a little bit. It started to feel like the message of Christ crucified was just a little bit too offensive. And in that same time frame, some ivy started to grow on that sign. And soon, that sign, just like the church, was, we preach Christ. They dropped the crucified. And they started talking about Jesus Christ, the good teacher, Jesus Christ, the moral man, Even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? They celebrated Christmas, but their Easter sermons got a little bit lax. They didn't really talk about Christ crucified. And still, that ball continued, that snowball went downhill. And soon, that ivy grew in and it said, We preach. They preached about the social platitudes and how people ought to be loving to one another, and how we ought to accept all people. And soon that ivy kept growing, and eventually all you could read on that sign was we. They became a social gathering place, a place where everybody in town wanted to be, a place where you could go and talk about the Red Sox and the Patriots, a place where you could have a really good supper. They were bigger than ever, they had more people than ever, but all they were was a social gathering place. If we do not preach Christ crucified, we have nothing! We need to stop worrying about preaching Protestant work ethic, republicanism. Trump, abortion, homosexuality. Are those things important? Yes, they are. But until people have Christ and a changed heart, they mean nothing. Nothing. And we ought to expect the ridicule from it. But folks, bring it on. I am proud to be in a church every Sunday preaches Christ crucified. And let's take that mindset, let's take Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, out into the world and preach Christ crucified. Mrs. Grant and I came to this church. 2015. Actually, we came in 2014. We came to the infamous Kevin Grant welcoming service. And... We were attending a biblically-based church, but we were struggling. We were struggling in that church. And we came to this service. We sat right there. We're only a few spots off from where we sat in that service. Sat with my mom, who had just beat breast cancer and still cancer-free. And I'll never forget the Kevin Grant welcome. Folks, it wasn't the fact that you stood up and clapped. It wasn't. My wife and I left that church service, and I said, There is a spirit there that I have not felt before. You know what that spirit was? That was the power of the cross. That was the power. Of God. And in the eight and a half years that we have been here subsequently, I can't tell you what a blessing it is to come to this church. I get excited to be here. I look forward to it. I look forward to my fellowship with you all. Pastor Stan, thank you for preaching Christ crucified. Pastor Mark, thank you for preaching Christ crucified. Pastor Sean, Thank you for teaching our young ones Christ crucified. Folks, let us never forget Christ crucified. Let us continue to preach Christ crucified. Forget the wisdom of the world.